Good evening, everyone. It's a Jewish holiday tonight, right? Veterans Day is coming to a close, but it's Rosh Chodesh tonight. It's a two-day Rosh Chodesh, starting this evening, continuing both on Thursday tomorrow and through Friday, ending on Shabbat, when Shabbat starts. The holiday, the month of Kislev, the month of dedicating ourselves to the miracles of goodness. Uh, I have uh, had the privilege of um, having two wonderful people enter my world over the last, I don't know, few years. I have gotten to know Rabbi Shmuelianpowitz over the last couple of years since he's moved to town with his beautiful family, uh, and I have the utmost uh, respect and love for my father. Uh, isn't he terrific? He's great, right? He's wonderful. He travels the world. He teaches Torah, but we know that his home is here. And we hope his home, the Shoshan, will get to be here for a long time. So, uh, Rav Shmuley, thank you for all that you do. Uh, we've learned together, we've talked together, and we've, we've shared time together. Uh, I don't know if Rabbi Yasheri knows this story, but when I was looking at both the seminary and the Ziegler School, I ended up going to Los Angeles, so I had a choice. Bel-Air or Harlem? It was very easy. So, um, anyway, Rabbi Sherry Hirsch was at the time, and if you remember this, but you were, I think, working on the admissions in your senior year of the medical school, so that was the time I was applying to school. So, uh, we have a connection directly over the phone years back, and certainly instrumental in, in who I am today, and we're delighted to have her here. We are delighted as congregational students to be a partner of Validating Drosh. Um, and we believe in the work and the learning of being part of a community that essentially is that, uh, a home of learning. What's wonderful about Validate Midrash, the words he was proud of to partner with, is it's not one bias, right? It's a big Midrash, but there are so many, you know, it's like Valley Bate Midrash, because we are going all throughout the community, and Rav Shmuley is bringing amazing uh, speakers and classes and learning, and, and it's part of our own education program here at Orzion. So we advertise it as part of our learning, we believe in what Validate Midrash does, and we are grateful for hosting this evening. You're in for a real, real treat. Um, and uh, Rabbi Sherry, I, I don't want to steal Rabbi Shmuley's summer, but she spoke at Limud last year here in our community, but she is a tremendous speaker, and she will leave us with some inspiration tonight. So, Rabbi Shmuley, welcome, and Chodesh uh, Awesome to be at Orzion, as always. Thank you all. And um, if you knew the number of deaths and shivas and births and students that this rabbi is balancing and yet still making it here tonight and doing all he does. It's truly, if you're a member of this congregation, you really have such a gift. Rabbi Kaplan. The number of things he does and is involved with is uh, really just a, uh, just a role model. Why don't we, um, first of all, I, I just want to name, our, our biggest critique this year so far has been, you're doing too much stuff. I can't come to all this stuff. Right? And I just want to say, there are countless people in the room, and I don't want to embarrass anyone, who were here, who were with us last night at a panel discussion, and are also here tonight, and are still smiling and are happy to be here. So, so thank you all for who um, are really hungry. At, every night there's either a presidential debate or a basketball game or something going on that could be, maybe you have a, something in your ear right now, I don't know. Um, but I'm happy all are here. Rabbi Sherry Hirsch is a rabbi and author who received her ordination and master's degree from JTS in New York. Rabbi Hirsch also received a master's degree in Hebrew letters from American Jewish University in LA. So apparently she did the New York and the Bel-Air thing. <laughs> as well as a bachelor's degree from Northwestern. She served as a rabbi at Sinai Temple in Los Angeles from 98 to 06. And she currently 
works as a spiritual life consultant at Canyon Ranch. Rabbi Hirsch is a contributor for MomLogic.com. Additionally, Rabbi Hirsch serves as a spiritual commentator for the Today Show and has been a guest on 30, 30 Good Minutes and the Tyra Banks Show. Her first book, We Plan, God Laughs, What to Do When Life Hits You Over the Head, was published in 2008. And her latest book, Thresholds, How to Thrive Through Life's Transitions to Live Fearlessly and Regret-Free, which we have outside if you're interested, is the topic of tonight's Valley Bay Midrash lecture. Rabbi Hirsch lives in Los Angeles with her husband Jeff, a doctor, and her four children. Look at them, the Lord so happy. Would have been so happy. <laughs> Uh, having spent uh, today and was with at Lastly Mood, I could say that Rabbi Sherry is delightful, has very unique energy and passion and warmth. It's really an honor to have her with us tonight. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Rabbi Sherry. So before I begin, first of all, I want to thank you all for coming out tonight, especially if you were at an event last night. Um, but I travel all over the country, and I know no two rabbis that I love more than these two rabbis. And you are so lucky. I'm not just saying that, because I don't go to every place and be like, oh, the rabbis are so great here. No, you really have something very special. And I, and I work for Candy Grant, so I love Arizona to begin with. So I want to thank you, Rabbi Micah and Rabbi Shmuley, for having me. So with that, I thought we would begin. Tell me, what is the, your favorite room in your home? This is not a rhetorical question. Just raise your hand. And tell me your name. Willie Cross. Willie? Oh, wow, great name. The kitchen. The kitchen. Tell me why the kitchen. Willie likes the kitchen. Many groups over many years, 
And what they found is people mention all kinds of rooms. But there's one room that they never mention, and yet we spent a tremendous amount of time in it. In fact, we spent about a third of our time in it, and that's the hallway. No, it's true. It is actually a room, but when we think of the rooms in our home, we don't consider the hallway one of them. And yet we cannot get from room to room until we are in the hallways. And I begin with this metaphor this evening because I think it is a good one for life. There are many times that we are in a room, that we are in a place that makes sense, where we are comfortable, we know exactly what we're supposed to be doing and how to do it. But there are many times in our lives, maybe even corresponding to the third of the time that we're in those hallways, that we're in a hallway. That we're in a place that is betwixt and between. Where we're not exactly sure what we're supposed to be doing, and we're not exactly sure how to get to the next room. And that's how I wanted to begin tonight. Because some of you in this room may be in a room. And if you are, I am delighted, because a room is a place that you know clearly who you are, what you do. But there may be some of you in this room that are not hallway. And for those of you that are, I hope this evening helps you to cross that threshold into the next room, or at least to think about it differently. I wish I could promise you that you'll be in a room forever, but the fact of the matter is, Intrinsic to the human experience is that you will be in a hallway many times in your life. Sociologists, anthropologists, historians, even the Jewish tradition have been studying what does it mean to be in the hallway. The Greeks termed the word limen, which is a threshold, literally. And Arnold Van Guetta in the early 1900s studied what are these liminal moments of our lives? When we are standing at a threshold, when we are on the cusp from going from single to married, from married to a family, from married to divorce, from working to retire, from full house to empty house, what are these moments in our lives and why are we so ill-equipped to handle Sir Arnold Baguetta, a very well-known anthropologist, studied them, and what he said was, perhaps it has to do with our genetics. Maybe some people are just more equipped genetically. Maybe it's our personality. Some people approach challenges and run through them, and other people stand at them and shirk away. Maybe it's the situation itself. Maybe some thresholds are easier to pass and some are harder. Maybe it's time when and how it happened. And the worst part is you would think is that the more mature you get, you like how I said that, mature, not aging, I don't believe in the word aging, just maturing, the more mature you get, you would become better at the thresholds. And what we found is that all of these instances, there was one thing that characterized them all. And it didn't have to do on, it didn't have to do with all these different Pieces, it had to do with one unifying characteristic, the F word. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Fear. What do you think? I hope you didn't think that. Shame on you. Rabbis don't speak like that. Fun is interesting. I like that word too. But it's actually fear. 
what drives people at the threshold of their lives to not cross, to back away, to run away, to sit down, to do anything but forge ahead is fear. So now I ask you again, what are we so afraid of? You tell me. Now tell me your name. Don't. We're afraid of change. Why are we so afraid of change? Because when we change, what happens to all the people around us? They have to change. And often, we think we're afraid of change because it's scary, but really we're afraid of change is because we cause everybody else to change in ways that we may not want to, and therefore it causes them pain. And what we need to do before we love is cause them so one big night spirit change. Good, give me another. Tell me your name. Otto. Otto? Can we just lower the air conditioner? I'm sorry, it's just hard for me to hear. Oh, Hannah. Beautiful. That was my mother's name. Beautiful. We're afraid of the unknown. That example goes back as far as the time. As we all know what happened when Moses told the Israelites they're going to be free from Egyptian slavery. They're building sand pyramids. They are five minutes into the journey, and what do they say? We're going back. We're going back. And nobody in their right mind, at 125 degrees, building sand pyramids, would say, I'm going back. But the fact of the matter is the unknown is so daunting that it will prevent us from moving forward, even in a very, very painful situation. We would rather physiologically stay in an uncomfortable situation, knowing that it's painful, then go to something unknown. Good. Give me another one. Tell me your name. Hi, Alan. Oh, beautiful one. People are afraid of failure, right? When I go into this room, next room, you might see that I'm an imposter. I see this often when people get a job promotion. They've dreamed about it, right? They've dreamed about this job, and then instead of feeling all that excitement and enthusiasm, they're terrified. They don't want to do it. Because why? What if they discover that I can't do this? Or even worse, what if I discover I can't do this? And what if I fail? And what's the byproduct of failure? What happens when we perceive ourselves failing in front of other people? Shame, which is the big one. Who wants to feel shame? God forbid we cross into another room, fail, and then others perceive that as failure, and what happens? We are shamed. There's nothing worse. Shame keeps us sitting in the same place over and over again. Any others? There was another hand. Go ahead. Fear of success, big one. Often, we're as afraid of failing as we are of succeeding. What if we became all that we imagined ourselves to be? We would shock ourselves, right? And that drives many people to stay inert, to stay where they are because the possibility of success is as daunting as the possibility of failure. Any others? Go ahead. Mm, big one. Right. Expectations, always. The more expectations you have, the more possibility for disappointment. And we all know what disappointment feels like because if you live as a human being in the 
world, the guarantee is that you will be disappointed. This is not supposed to be a negative message, it's supposed to be a human message. Many times in our lives we will be disappointed, and the truth of the matter is, if we cross into another room, there is a possibility it won't meet our expectations. And, by the way, we don't live in a sitcom, right? It's not like, oh, we take the next job, it's perfect, and the show ends, right? Often what happens is we go into another room, and it's okay. It's not good, it's not bad, it's just okay. And then what happens? It takes us to another hallway, and then another room. So I want to tell you about one of the most liminal moments of my own life. I had a very troubled relationship with my father. He was a very difficult father. He would say that himself. He had a very difficult upbringing, and he carried that into his parenting. My father's now, uh, I'll give you that in a sec. So, I was newly married, about six months in. I was a pulpit rabbi at Sinai Temple in Los Angeles. First woman rabbi, delighted, enjoying my life, and I get a call at seven in the morning. The phone rings. I pick it up. Sherry, is that you? Yes. The voice was very familiar, but I hadn't heard it in a long time. Dad, is that you? Yes. Is everything okay? No. What's wrong? I have pancreatic cancer, and I'm going to die in six months. And, one more thing, Sherry. I'm going to move from Washington to L.A., and I want you to take care of me. The silence, my jaw, my husband looked at me like, what has happened? Your face went white because I had nothing to say. If there was ever a liminal moment, because these are the ones we don't talk about. These private ones that happen in the recesses of our heart and in the privacy of our own life that are, there's no right or wrong way. Because the truth is you're not going to decide between murder or not murder. That's probably never going to happen in your life. You're probably going to decide between two what I call rights. If I choose to take care of him, it would make sense. It would be the loving daughter thing to do, but would I be inviting drama back into my life? Would I be inviting all these things that I had worked through and have to deal with and bring it all back in and affect my marriage and how it would affect my marriage? But on the other hand, I took care of 5,000 Harmons, people I didn't even know. I would sit at their bedside and hold their hands as they died that I didn't even have history with. And that would be right, too. So I had to deliberate between two rights. And often, when we stand at a threshold, there are many choices in front of you. That's what makes it so difficult. Because when Robert Frost wrote his poem, I Took the Road Less Traveled, he was only talking about two roads. We have over 150 different toothpaste to choose from <laughs> in the grocery market. Most of our life is inundated with choices, and I could take either one. I won't keep it successful. I decided to take care of him. I engaged my brother, who had been living up north, with his wife. They moved down. We moved my father into a small apartment with his girlfriend. And as the doctor said, six months later, he died. And I would like to tell you that it was this beautiful story 
where we had six months of reconciliation and forgiveness, but as I mentioned before, life is not a TV show. It was really hard. And there were some sweet moments, and there were some difficult moments. It pretty much was what I thought it would be. But I got to sleep at night. But let me tell you, had I taken the other road, I may have slept as well. What's so difficult is that our life is made up of so many decisions now, and there is not a guarantee that the next room will be right or wrong. It will be different. And our whole life is spent trying to get to the right room, and I have to tell you, there is no right room. There's a great study done by some wonderful scientists about the problem of choice, and I bring this up because what they did, I love food, I mean, who doesn't? What they did is they put, gave people a menu. And they said, pick any dessert you want from the menu, and when it comes out, hold on to the menu. And so they took a control group, and everybody did it. And when Ed, all the desserts came out, guess what happened? I like her dessert better. Yeah. I want to buy that one. Now give me that one. I want that one. Right? And then they took another control group. And they said, okay, there's three choices. Coffee, cake, cookie. And we're taking your menu away from you. They brought out the desserts. Everybody got the coffee, the cake, and the cookie. And guess what happened? They were happy. Our problem now is that we are so inundated with choices, and it's a beautiful life that we have that freedom. But we can't continue to think that there is one right room that will get us to the right life. It is a series of decisions that we make that define us. And as long as we are not derailed in the process, that's the point. So let me tell you the greatest liminal moment of all time. It's God's liminal moment. If you remember how the Bible starts, suddenly God is there. And what is God in? A hallway. It's entirely dark. God is in a hallway, and God must make a choice. Do I go forward and create a world knowing that it could be possibly a disaster, which, spoiler alert, it is? <laughs> or do I stay in the dark? We don't know about God's parents. We don't know about God's social life. For all we know, God is happy there. So what does God do? God creates a small ruach. For those of you that know Hebrew in the room, a ruach is a wind, but it also can be a breath. So it is a small movement. And with that, the world comes into being. And God is thrust into a new room. And as we know from the story, we just began reading it anew a few weeks ago, that new room, people misbehave. So God went into another hallway, brought a lot of animals. Do not want to think about the bathroom situation on that boat. Brought a lot of animals, thrust into another hallway, to go to yet another room. What's so beautiful about the story is that God had faith. People think that faith means to have faith in God, but actually that story is about having faith. Jonathan Sachs, who's the chief, who was the chief rabbi in England, who I always like to bring a bit of a story that you can take home with you. So he runs a podcast every week for the Parsha. It's called Covenants and Conversation. You can download it on your iPhone. If there's anything you take away, listen to it every week. I don't always agree with his politics. I don't always agree with his stance on women. 
but I really love his Torah. So if there's one thing you take away, download Covenant Conversation. So Jonathan Sachs comments on a Parshat Noah a few weeks ago, and what did he say? That faith is not about believing something greater than yourself will make it all okay. Faith is staying in the game. Faith is regardless of what happens to you that you will stay in and you will go on. So God had faith. See, we usually think of faith as more of optimism. Oh, if you're a person of faith, you're just optimistic that things will all turn out okay. This is very different than optimism or self-trust. Optimism is that comma, everything will be okay. Faith doesn't have that comma and that end of the sentence. Faith is, it will be without good or bad or okay or it will make sense. It will be because some of it will be really hard. I love that God's name, when Moshe asked, when God was in dialogue with Moshe about trying to get Moshe to lead the people, and Moshe finally says to God, what is your name? And what does God say? Ehyeh, Asher, Ehyeh. I will be that I will be. God doesn't say, I'll be a great God. I'll be a cruel God. I'll be an understanding God. I'll be a racial God. I'll be a dysfunctional God. God says, it is. And what it means to have faith is to recognize that regardless of what is thrown at you, you stay in the game. You go to the next room, and if it is difficult and it is hard, you understand that, but then you make it to the next hallway. This is why people often say at the end of their lives, it all makes sense now. Because they can look back in hindsight and retrospect and see all the different twists and turns, and they can make meaning out of it. But along the way, you can't. You just have to have faith. I'm not saying you have to have faith in God. There's 88 names for God in the Bible alone, and there's only 500 words. So that means almost one-fifth of the Bible is dedicated to naming God in a different way. You have to have faith in you. It begins with prayer, which, as you know, is a reflexive verb. It begins with praying to the most important essence of who you are. When I was in the fourth grade, all they talked about in Hebrew school, besides the Hebrew letters, was you are made in God's image. B'Selem Elohim. So I ask you not to chew gum, you're B'Selem Elohim. And of course, that was the most unconvincing argument. And since I stood at 4'7", all I could think about was God is so short. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, what it means to be the Selim Elohim is to stand in a dark hallway and make a small ruach. To make a small wind and set that process in motion. There is many moments in your life that you will cause suffering. You will cause people that you love pain because you will have to go. The most obvious is the final threshold. And I say this because there was an instance, as a rabbi many times you are invited into the sacred most intimate moments of people's lives. 
And I carry that very, like a treasure in my heart. So this one particular instance, this very big mocker in our community was near death. And he called me to his bedside. And when I got there at the hospital, there was about 80 people that I had to wade through to get to him. And he was beloved. He was a philanthropist. He was kind. He had lived an incredible life. And I couldn't imagine what he wanted to say to me. He had enormous embrace of every arm of the community around him. When I got inside his room, he said to me, Rabbi, tell them all to leave. That's where you get a little bit of the power of being a rabbi. So, you know, you got to get some first. So sure enough, I say to everybody, you know, I'm going to ask you to leave. He needs to be alone. He said, I'm standing at the final threshold. I have lived an extraordinary life. And I am ready to go. And I began to weep. And I know that what I've done here on this earth is meaningful and it makes sense and I am okay. But there's one thing keeping me from going. All of them. Because the minute I go, I know they will be suffering. And my whole life has been dedicated to taking care of them. And why would I start now? to not take care of them. May your final threshold be at 120. But the truth is, is that when you stand and you go forward with faith, it will cause pain. It's not your intention. It is what you must do because you need to be the cell of Elohim. Not short. You need to be godly. So before I conclude and take a few questions, the Jewish community in America is at a threshold. Israel's at a threshold. Because it's not just on the micro-personal level, of which I think is very important, but it's also on the macro level. What denominations, reformed, conservative, orthodox, will look like in the future what we talk about as a post-denominational era. What does it mean to be a Jew and to be a member? And will there be synagogues? I hope there will be. But what they will look like. We're on the cusp. <coughs> Israel, too, is at a threshold. It's about to enter this room. And how we enter as a community collectively is extremely important. The most important thing is that all these thresholds are meant to define us. They're not meant to derail us. It's the reason when you go back home tonight, most likely on your door is a mezuzah. On every threshold. The halakha, the Jewish law, commands that you put a mezuzah on your door except for bathrooms. Do not leave God. No one go home and be like, oh my God, the rabbi said I didn't have a mezuzah here. That is not the Judaism I believe in. But when you walk into that threshold, you will see your mezuzah. And as you know, it's on a slant. There was a debate, a machlokit, in the Talmud, in the oral tradition, between the school of Beit Hillel and the school of Beit Shammah. Many of you may already know this. Beit Hillel always won except for five cases. Beit Shammai always did it. But there was one case in which they compromised. And it was over the threshold. 
It was the one place that when you cross it, when you go in and you go out, that you remind yourself, this is how I'm defined as a Jew in the world. I'm not supposed to be derailed. And it's to remind you to have faith in the most important person that is in front of you, which is you. This is my prayer for all of you, is that whether you're in a room at this moment or in a hallway, that God gives you the faith to endure. And one day, and may it be when you're 120, you can look back and say, I stood at many thresholds, and they defined me. And as a result, I've lived a very well-meaning, God-like life. Thank you very much. So I thought speaking to Rabbi Yehlevitz, but I just heard Rabbi Kaplan pronounce it differently, so forgive me if I'm pronouncing it incorrectly. It's a big name. It's a big name. Um, I thought I would take some questions. I hear from some of you, and of course, people always ask about Canyon Ranch, so I'm happy to talk to you about that as well. Tell me your name. Before you even say it, I have to just say one thing. As a pulpit rabbi, you're often asked a lot of personal questions, and I chose not to answer many of them. So my husband, who often didn't come to shul, people would say, where are you? Oh, they would say, where's your husband? And I would say, he's fine, thank you. <laughs> and so I always remind people, you don't always have to answer the question that's asked. It's a really good sort of technique. And people would be like, huh, okay, that's not the question I asked, but okay. So go ahead.
I'm going to rephrase. Why does everybody have to weigh in? I actually don't think that's the problem. I actually think being vocal is what sustained us as a people. Right? That, I mean, the old joke, right? There's 10, rabbis, 10 Jews in a room, we have 20 opinions, right? That's the old joke. I don't love jokes like that. But the point being is that vocalness, the fact that the word has so much power, the fact is that the word has carried us through 5,000 years, I don't think the problem is the problem. What I think the problem is, is our oversensitization to the comments. That everything's so personal. Someone said, you made the wrong decision, and I'm like, oh, I made it wrong. They're entitled. I think that diversity of voice and eclectic voice and people speaking out is what keeps Judaism alive. I have no problem with that. I think our task is not to take things so personal. It's to realize that everything your spouse says is not a personal attack or a personal comment or you need to respond to. Sometimes it just warrants a, good to know you're speaking. Good to know you have voice, right? Um, so I would look at it differently. I hope that gives you a clear sense, but that's the way. So I don't, um, it depends on how we internalize things. And I think often we're over-personalizing, and maybe our task is to continue the conversation and just less the personalization. Rabbi. <laughs> I have to call him a rabbi. One of the ideas you wrote about was about being a B-plus spouse or a B-plus parent. I think one of the challenges in our modern condition like failures. We weren't good enough to our parents. We weren't good enough to our children. We didn't, weren't as successful in our careers as we'd like to be. Our marriages aren't as good as they could be. We feel in modern America like inadequate. We feel this regret, this shame about our condition. I'm obviously not speaking for everyone. Um, but, and I know you address this in the book, so I mean, how do you advise people think about when, when it's such a complex time where we're so demanded at, towards perfection that we think about the B-plus model. So I talk a lot about in the book about be a B-plus. Um, and thank you for that question. We have become a community and a world that thinks that perfection is a destination. And when we get there, we will be okay. So we are in a constant quest to be in that room that does not exist. It is a fruitless quest. And actually, just as you know, when God created the world, what did God say at the end of each day? It's good. A couple days, it was very good. God knew the word for perfect, but did not use it. Because the quest is to realize that our challenge is to be good. And what I see in today's society more than anything, especially with women, because I'm with a lot of women, is that they take all the drive that they have in their professional lives and they bring it to parenthood. And so there's this expectation if they're not the perfect mother and they're not doing everything and at the basketball game and picking up the purple and do, making the homemade cupcakes and up at two in the morning, then somehow they're failing as a mother. And I actually think that's a failure. What our children and our grandchildren need to see is our total resilience, our ability to overcome difficulty and our ability to forgive, to let go, to say I'm sorry. The example I just use very recently is, you know, you're in the car, and I've got a packed car of kids in the back. I've got the minivan, yes I do. I've got the minivan, and someone cuts in front of me, and my heart races, and what do I do? I curse, right? I'm a human being. The first thing is like, oh my God, I'm not perfect, now I need to beat myself up. My God, my kids have heard a curse word. Instead of, 
turning around, looking at my kids being like, turns out I'm very human. I definitely owe a dollar in the curse word jar. But that being said, it makes, I'm good, I'm not great. And I hope you can understand that. It's a far better message to send to our children, and it's a far better forgiving message to send to ourselves. So I talk a lot about that in the book about striving to be a B plus. I think a B plus, by the way, I didn't say strive to be a C plus or a C minus. <laughs> B plus is pretty good, right? And I, I think an A plus is overrated. Go ahead. saying. 
I've been a little devil's advocate. I actually don't think you can go back. If you think about your childhood home, as an adult, when you go back for the first time, what do you think about? Small. What's changed? You. You're big. I actually think once you've crossed a room and crossed a threshold, you have been fundamentally changed by that experience. And even as desperately as you want to go back, it will not be the same experience. That doesn't mean it won't be. You can go back to another job, but there won't be the same you because you've been changed by the thing by the experience that you've been in. I agree. It doesn't have to be back, but it could be somewhere else. Exactly. So I would just say forward, because I actually don't think you can go back. And I think it's the reason that you're married to your spouse for 20 years and you can never replicate that first kiss, yeah. right? You can have other kisses that are even better, but that first one, the first time you actually kissed, you can't replicate it because you've been fundamentally changed by it. So I actually agree with you. So I do think you go forward, but... My hope is that the book helps people see that is what you said, the fun in the journey. I think we're starting to live in a society that doesn't appreciate the fun. We don't like ambiguous. We don't like anything ambiguous. We like to know everything. We like people to know where they're going. We're very linear. I mean, I always, the example I use is for years and years, we don't like ambiguous gender. We don't like ambiguous position in life. I am in between jobs. I'm not jobless, right? And what's the biggest one in Judaism? Crustaceans. Why do you think, and this is a new to me, I learned this a few years back, why do you think crustaceans became unkosher? Yeah. Why? Well, we just talked about oh. why it was that kosher. It turns out that the rabbis didn't know what category to put crustaceans <laughs> in. And they put them in ambiguous. And that's how they became unkosher. That's how uncomfortable we are with ambiguity and with not knowing what's next. And if we can begin to embrace that ambiguity is what creates greatness, creativity, innovation, and I think that one's got a really fun journey. That's the whole book. So, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, tell me. Uh, you talked about the hallway of Israel. Yes. And uh, I think we're all in that hallway now, and we're invited to where they, my friends and I disagree a lot about Israel. How do we get out of that hallway together? So let me ask you that. going on in our community, right? We're all very, very strongly opinionated on what Israel should be doing, and you can hear it locally within the Jewish community. In LA, some rabbis are taking a stand, some rabbis aren't. It's created a lot of brouhaha the rabbis that are versus the rabbis that aren't. What do you think is, I'm asking, what do you think is the problem with the divisiveness? The biggest problem is that the next generation, your generation, and then after, uh, don't want any part of it. Because? And what's their perception? I'm sorry, I'm pushing you a little bit. What's their perception? Their perception is that Israel is doing, consistently doing the wrong thing. Right. So, so, okay, we're not going to do politics. I won't do politics. I don't do politics. There are great rabbis that do politics. I'm not one of them. That being said, I think our fear is that the hallway is that if we're divisive, then that will shut down the next generation, and therefore we will then make Israel unappealing, or we will then become a divided nation. First of all, division, northern and southern Judah, not the worst thing in our history, right? Division is how we live our lives. I think what's more interesting is the conversation we have about divisiveness. 
what we're saying to each other about how to embrace what it means to have different opinions and how that looks, I think is far more interesting than the conversation of, oh my God, if they see us arguing, they will think that, in fact, it's not worth it. But if you think of your own personal life, if your kids never see you arguing, they never see you fighting for what really matters in your marriage. And once we had a situation, and I heard someone say, you got to show your kids that you argue. Because then they know you overcome it, and when you're in the next room, it means you've really got something you believe in. I think that might be a little more interesting conversation. Go ahead. I hope we don't go down the political route. It's not my forte. <laughs> So tell me your name. Ruth. Ruth. She said, can you talk a little bit about overcoming regrets and living fearlessly? <clears throat> I have waited the entire book tour for this question. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. I hate this subtitle. I did not write it. Man, the house wrote it. This is the beauty of being with a large corporation called Random House. They have a great big machine that publishes your book, and it's wonderful. And you have a phenomenal editor, and my editor is the love of my life. She's fantastic. That being said, you don't only get final set. That subtitle killed me. And I fought to the death to change it. I did not win. Maybe if I'm Kim Kardashian, I would win because I would have, you know, 60 billion Instagram followers, but I choose not to be Kim Kardashian. Um, the fact of the matter is that I think the point was to live fearlessly to go forward into the next room, and that as you have regrets, that you leave them in the room behind you. And that you don't spend your life compiling a list of regrets so that at the end you say, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish, rather that each one you say, you know, that led me here. And while it's not where I expected I would be, it has led me to make yet another decision. And that's informed everything. And so that's the way you dispense with the regrets. It's not that you have no regrets, we all have regrets. But I waited for this question all through the book tour and always with bated breath on my, you know, but I hope that answers it to some degree because I've thought very much about it. Okay. Well, guys, a lot of questions, are we okay? Okay, tell me your name. Um, Hannah. Oh, Hannah, sorry, if I didn't even look up, I just saw a hand. Yeah. Um, and let me get back for a moment to the question of divisiveness. Oh, I do, okay. Judea, right? So I'm not so convinced. I'm not so convinced. But, but it still fell apart. 
Yes, it fell apart, but then it emerged in a new way, right? And we're still able to talk about it. I mean, that's just not optimism. That's sort of that's historically what happened. It fell apart. Then as a price, we were told we lost the other. Right, but maybe that wasn't our history, right? I mean, who can say? That being said, I think the larger issue that you ask is how do you have conversations within your home when you're so divided? And I think a lot of people are struggling with that because I think often. One generation is speaking one day, one way, and the younger generation is speaking sort of with this universalism, and you know, it's a different language than even language of obligation of which we spoke. Um, I put myself in the latter category because I'm, I've crossed that threshold of the younger generation. I knew it when someone called me madam. Um, I also knew it when the guy said to me, when one of, someone said to me on a radio show, this will really speak to your audiences, you know, the older ones. Uh, <laughs> You. Um, leave that aside. That being said, I think those conversations are hard to have when we don't learn how to have respectful discourse. And I think part of what's scaring the bejesus out of us is we don't have an answer, and nobody does. And actually, I had dinner with Rabbi Shmuley tonight, and one of the things we talked about is no one knows what it looks like. No one's like, here's the plan. Here's how we have these conversations. Here's how we have discourse. Here's how we understand pluralism. And even in, within our own homes, no one's got the recipe. And if you know, I'm ready to hear it. Because whoever's got it, they're going to win the Nobel Peace Prize. But I think that's what a lot of rabbis, like your own, are trying to figure out. So stay tuned. Because I don't have it either. Go ahead. Uh, I didn't hear your name, sorry. Yeah. Ed. I thought you said Air. I was like, that's so beautiful. But Ed's nice, too. <laughs> But that being said, at the essence of who I am as a Jew, 
What I do know by the Pew reports, by anecdotal uh, observation, is that 85% of Jews are not stepping into a synagogue. And that if we're waiting for them to come through the doors, we're going to be waiting a long time. So our job is to step out. And that's one of the reasons I came to Canyon Ranch. Canyon Ranch, as many of you know, especially in Arizona, people think of it as a health spa. It's far bigger than that. The vision of the owners, Melanie Enid, was to change the way people view health through the language of Judaism, although that is their not outright spoken mission. So what you don't know is they have 25 properties. They run the Cleveland Clinic. They do everything anonymously. They do an extraordinary, everyone who survived 9-11 was invited to Canyon Ranch for a week on their dime. You cannot imagine the philanthropy that they do. They're trying to seek and figure out ways to understand what health and to live well means. I think they're doing it through a very Jewish language. I don't think they saw it in that way originally, but I think now they are. How I found them was a very curious incident. They were looking to develop 13 years ago their spirituality, and they were seeking out different teachers in all different religions and spiritualities that were doing innovative things. They called me and said, would you come for a weekend to speak? I spoke, and out in the audience, and if you can appreciate this, I was 13 years ago, so I was 33 years old. Harold Kushner, who wrote My Bad Things Happen to Good People, was sitting in the third row, and I thought to myself, oh my God, they're serious. <laughs> and he's on the board, if that gives you a sense of the Jewish lens of what they're looking through. And I spent the weekend with them. I brought my mother as my guest. And my mother said to me, get this job. What <laughs> involved uh, was now we do two Canyon Ranch Jewish Women Spirituality Retreats where we do serious tech study and we do Shafri hiking and study. Um, it's been, this is our bar mitzvah year, our bar mitzvah year this coming year. We do them in Lenox and Tucson. I travel to all the properties. We do weekends on grief. We do them on transition. And really what I say is like taking your Judaism up a notch. And we, make it, we try to make it accessible for everybody because cost-wise, their vision is that this kind of health is for everyone in the world. Um, even though those properties can be a little cost prohibited, we work very closely to make them not. So I've had hundreds of women come from all over the country to spend a week with me learning about Judaism through the lens. And I think outside the land of Israel, there's no prettier place than Tucson, Arizona at Canyon Ranch. And, uh, and that's how it started. And I, I always sort of joke about this. My husband always says, if I knew what being married to a rabbi of a large congregation would be like, I would have never married you. I'm always like, thanks. <laughs> if I knew you were going to get a gig at Canyon Ranch, I would marry a thousand times over. <laughs> so I do have a good gig. Um, they just sold, so we'll see what the future holds, but I feel like every day that we continue to help bring help that we, and from the lens of Judaism, I think it's that was a long answer to a short question. Let's take one more. Let's take one more. Suzanne, you want to? So as our children are getting older, yes. and they're walking through their cycles, as a parent, it's hard to say, the left and not right, the right and not left. And, um, you know, as we see our mistakes, how as a parent do you see watching your children go, making these decisions? So it's a beautiful question. I'm glad we did. I think the biggest mistake that we try to do in our life is three words. We try to afford. We try to fix. 
I think the biggest mistake is we're so, in parenting, trying to prevent our children from pain that we're not letting them experience struggle. So they have no trust that they can overcome obstacles. And that's why they're maturing later. That's why they're struggling in their relationships because they don't have that ability, that resilience that you get over obstacles. And sometimes it's really hard because they've been so us trying to fix them and protect them. I think the greatest gift we give our children, and I do this in word and in deed, is we let them fail. And um, in my own life, it's not been pretty. I, I know I could have made decisions where I didn't let them fail, and I could have protected them, and um, I chose not to with my husband. Because growing up, I didn't have that, and I think it creates a different type of resilience. And to learn that you can overcome obstacles and still be okay is more valuable than anything else you're doing. So it's a hard one because we want to protect them. We want to keep them safe in our house. Safe is one thing. Other than that, you're on your own, which is a very different school of parenting. I've just been asked by UCLA to do a parenting thing, and I said no because I have no idea how to parent. I'm just experimenting on my four kids. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my name is Chuck. I just want to give you one expression my mother had. Sure. Cut the cord. Beautiful. I think that's a beautiful way to end. So thank you so much for having me. I think we're going to rename BBM to BBM colon thresholds because I think what we're trying to do here is not give the answers to anything. Um, but realize that we're just here in this journey, in this community together, and let's work harder, let's persevere, let's learn more deeply, let's open our hearts more wider, our, our brains, our brains to a higher capacity, and let's just hold each other's hands through it. Thank you all so much for being here.